There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fastman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Once upon a time, you bought a new car, drove it off the lot, and that was that. Increasingly, however, cars run on constantly updated software. It's a revolutionary change that's disrupting one of the world's biggest industries. And Britain's National Trust is an enormous landowner, giving its members access to stately homes on green and pleasant lands. Uncontroversial, twee stuff. But lately, it has, like so many institutions, been drawn into the culture wars. First up, though. On October 29th, crowds of Halloween partygoers poured into the Itaewon neighborhood of South Korea's capital, Seoul, for an evening of revelry. But despite repeated calls to police from people concerned about dangerous levels of overcrowding, nothing was done to stop more people coming. It's believed around 130,000 descended on the neighborhood. In a crush in an alleyway, more than 150 of them died. A police investigation is looking into what went wrong and where the blame for the disaster might lie. But many politicians in South Korea's National Assembly aren't happy with that. And today, they launched their own investigation. Weeks after the crush that resulted in 158 deaths in Itaewon, the opposition party has decided to file a motion to get an independent investigation off the ground. Andrew Knox is our Korea's correspondent. So far, we have a fairly good picture of how events unfolded. From very early in the night, people were piling into Itaewon, which at some points is very, very small. I mean, there are a lot of bars there, a lot of restaurants. It's really popular among young people, both Koreans and foreigners. And there are some choke points around the local bars. Most importantly, this tiny little alleyway, which is only like about four meters wide. And already by about 6.30, calls were coming into the police saying, there are a lot of people here. It's potentially dangerous. Things might get out of hand. And yet no policeman showed up to address that problem. Halloween is an enormously popular holiday in Korea. And especially this year, after the pandemic and after everyone had been holed up and unable to party with their friends and whatnot, there was an incredible amount of enthusiasm. 
So as more and more people showed up in the alley, one caller called the police to tell them that she was deeply concerned that something might go wrong. And later she said that she barely made it out because it was too crowded. And so far, we know that at least 11 such calls were made to the police emergency number and that the callers mentioned on these calls that there was a visible lack of police present in the area. And yet, despite this, people kept arriving, knowing nothing about what was going on in the area at the time. By 8.53, a caller near a nightclub on the alley in question begged the police for help. The final brief call we know of was at about 11 minutes past 10. And then shortly thereafter, at about quarter past 10, the deadly crush itself happened. Records show that the police only mobilized officers in response to four of these calls that had been coming in over the previous hours. And no officers were dispatched to respond to any of the calls in the final hour before the crush. And the police themselves have been looking into what's happened here. What have they come up with so far? Yes, so very quickly afterwards, the police launched a special investigation into the matter, and they've conducted a number of raids on various offices, including Seoul's Metropolitan Police Agency, specific police stations, fire stations, emergency call handling offices. And they had also raided the offices of the chief of the National Police Office, the chief of the Seoul Metropolitan Agency, and the chief of the Yongsan Police, who was later dismissed. South Korea's police chief, Yoon Hee-kyun, has said that the police response was inadequate, and he felt limitless responsibility for public safety over the disaster. But that's a little bit different from the way in which the government itself initially responded to this. The interior minister, Lee Sang-min, has now apologized for what happened, but his initial response was to say that it couldn't have been prevented even had there been more police officers and more firefighters in the area. It, in fact, led to a group of unionized firemen filing a complaint against him for essentially, in their view, trying to scapegoat them. One of the questions that has really plagued people in the days and weeks that have followed the tragedy is, where were the police in all this, and why was the response not stronger? They've said there were only 137 officers in the vicinity. In a country where the smallest protest is met with dozens, if not hundreds, sometimes thousands of police officers standing at the sidelines, that feels like a really small number to have for a predictable crowd of this size. And so, so far, kind of still in the middle of the story here, has anyone been held responsible, been punished for their role? Seven people have had indictments handed down on charges relating to disaster. There's also been a couple of incidents of suicide with people related to the tragedy, one of whom was an intelligence officer at the Yongsan police station who has been connected to the alleged deletion of a report 
a few days prior to the event suggesting that there was a serious danger of something going wrong. Uh, His supervisor is currently under investigation as well. But one of the criticisms of these indictments so far is that they basically target people mostly at a low level and don't really ask probing questions about how far up responsibility goes and who should ultimately be accepting blame for what happened. And that, in turn, is the reason that that people in Parliament want this investigation to go higher? Yes. What is clear is that these deaths were avoidable. It's not unusual that large numbers of young people gather in Itaewon for Halloween, and it's not unheard of that there be a police presence there that exercises some degree of crowd control. So the questions that really remain unanswered is, why did that not happen? The claim of those who are trying to get this investigation off the ground is essentially it didn't happen because of incompetence on the part of those in charge, both at the local level, but equally importantly, those up the chain of command to them who bear ultimate responsibility for this sort of thing. And this concern that accountability reach all the way to the top, it's important to note that the committee being set up will be dominated by the opposition party. So part of the reason why they want to have this parliamentary inquiry is because of concerns about the degree of control that the government exerts over the police, especially after a legal change back in September that created a police bureau within the Ministry of the Interior, which gave the executive far greater control over appointments and various important decisions in the structure of the police department. But in a sense, what we already know is is enough to know about the ultimate failings that were so deadly here. This is now a question of which heads should roll. I mean, more broadly, what does the public make of uh, of what's happened here? How do you think this has affected the country? So I think in the immediate aftermath, the country was pretty much united in grief. White chrysanthemums littered the streets outside of the alleyway where this happened, and there was a big public memorial outside of City Hall. But as the weeks have worn on, this grief has very much turned to anger and concern. This isn't just because of how terrible the tragedy was, but also because of the historical context in which it happened. Only in August, President Yoon had a difficult time managing flooding in Seoul that resulted in several deaths and came off looking aloof and uncaring. Before that, back in 2014, there was a disaster that still very much grips the Korean mind, which was a ferry that sank off the southwestern coast of the country with 300 or so people on board, of whom the vast majority were schoolchildren. That broadly has created a feeling in the country that the government is not able or willing to protect its own citizens, among the older generation that it's not looking after their children, and among the younger generation that it doesn't look after them. And that combined with the fact that it is a country where young Koreans already feel their prospects for employment, their prospects for a family life, 
their prospects for a good life in general are more limited than they ought to be. To feel on top that the government isn't able to perform the basic function of the state, which is to keep them safe, that's really making people angry. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine that after a day's work, you're not quite ready to go home. Perhaps you want to catch a film. You could head to the cinema, but instead, you retreat into your car. A few taps on the touchscreen dashboard, and the vehicle turns into a multimedia cocoon. Light trickles down the interior surfaces like a waterfall, Speakers pump out surround sound. And augmented reality glasses make a screen appear in front of your eyes. This immersive experience is at the core of what NIO, a Chinese electric vehicle company, laid out as the future of the car at its launch party last month in Berlin. The firm wants its high-end electric cars to be a second living room. With cutting-edge technology, we can turn the automotive interior into a fully immersive digital space. And it reflects a transformation happening across the vehicle industry. Neo is at the forefront of the revolution in the car industry. What was once the archetypal hardware business becoming ever more about software. Simon Wright is our industry editor. Cars were set in stone as soon as they rolled off the assembly line, but now they're turning into dynamic platforms for applications and features which can be updated over the air. So, in effect, cars improve with age. Brands will become defined less by handling or mechanical excellence, and more by the services they offer, from entertainment to artificially intelligent driving aids. How is this tilt towards software going to impact the industry? This is actually an enormous upheaval for the industry, and it's one that's gone unnoticed, largely because electrification is what everybody thinks is the big revolution in the industry. And like all revolutions, there'll be winners and losers. The reason is this. Car makers like Neo or Tesla are digitally native in the argo of tech people. What that means is they consider themselves software companies first, who just happen to make cars. But the old-fashioned established car industry are steeped in mechanical engineering, In order to pivot to becoming software engineers, it means an entire upheaval of the way they go about business and almost everything they do. You're seeing the ripples already playing out in the established car industry. The boss of Volkswagen, Herbert Diess, lost his job recently after botching the German car maker's plans for its Carriad software division, which is running a long way behind schedule. And Volkswagen has made one of the biggest bets on software in the industry. So for traditional car makers, transitioning to software, it's proving much trickier, but it's also may prove much more consequential. 
consequential. Luc de Mayo, the boss of Renault, which is a French car maker, likens the situation to the upheaval in telecoms brought about by the smartphone. And it will define the fate of an industry which now has revenues of nearly $3 trillion a year. And so tell us a bit about why companies like NIA are better placed to do this than traditional car makers. Well, electrification allows the redesign of the entire architecture of the car. And what they're now trying to do is make that computing much more centralised. So you only have one or two bits of computer in the car. And that means for the newcomers to the industry, it's much easier because they're starting with a clean sheet of paper. For the legacy car industry who have all these different parts, different bits of software all over the vehicle, it's much more difficult for them to get all this software and make it all work as one. And they're still sort of tangling with that problem. So tell us how the incumbents are adapting to these new demands. Well, they're doing it in several ways. What they're certainly doing is they're talking a lot more about software. They're having software days where they lay out their plans to investors. And most car makers are employing a chief software officer or someone of that sort of description. The other thing they're doing is they're setting up big software units within the car maker. But how they're doing that differs And one of the big questions for the car industry is how much of this software to produce in-house. Because this software will define brands in the future, it's important they keep control of the bits that are really important. They think that's the user interface, as dashboards are now called, and safety features and things like that. But again, there's differences of opinion. Volkswagen thinks it needs to make 60% of its software in-house. Most of the other car makers think 20 or 30% is about right. And that means making deals with tech companies to provide the rest of it. Is there a risk, do you think, that as these incumbents shift toward a more software-based model, that they lose something of their identity, of their brand, of the thing that differentiates them? Well, I simply don't have a choice, I don't think, because the theory is that this is exactly what the new car buyer of the future will want. So if they don't go down this route, they risk having their lunch eaten by the newcomers like the Teslas and the Tesla wannabes, such as Neo, Xpeng, and other car makers like that. What they do risk losing is their grip on the car industry because they have to get this software and the old mechanical engineers to work together. And this is proving very difficult because software and hardware are two very, very different things. The sort of hardware of a car industry is the car itself, and that... For the old-fashioned industry, it happens in four-year cycles, and it always has done. And there's never really in the past been a great deal of innovation. It's come very, very slowly. Software is very different. Software happens in days, hours, even minutes. And software is never really finished. So what they have to do is get a software unit containing new hires to work seamlessly with the hardware team who are all mechanical engineers. And that's the real problem. And if you're a newcomer to the industry, such as Tesla, it's much easier to do that because, you know, you start with this clean sheet of paper and that's always been your aim. Whereas in the car industry, the mechanical engineers have always dominated and they still sort of dominate. Your terrific article, Simon, talks about the sort of bells and whistles that are in these new cars. What are the bells and whistles and how are they planning to make money from software? Well, this software is going to provide a whole load of new functions in a car. Neo is a great example. One of the things they want to do is turn their car into something like a living room where you can watch films using virtual reality on a widescreen. It means improved infotainment systems, better mapping, better sound. These are the sort of things that we're going to see in the car of the future. 
Some car makers do see this as a pot of gold. They think they can charge more money for subscriptions to things like better infotainment systems. Volkswagen see that software could have revenues of something like $1.2 trillion by 2030. But here's the thing. These sort of services and these subscriptions, it's not really clear that anyone will pay for them. BMW caused uproar in the industry when it suggested it might start charging a subscription for heated seats, for example, a few months ago. And I think they're just trying out what they think they can do. Because, you know, if your heated seats came for free and suddenly you're being asked to pay for them, that's a big ask for a car buyer. But there are some things that car buyers apparently will pay for. If you look at Tesla, what they call their full self-driving system costs $15,000 and plenty of their customers have signed up for that. But what has tended to happen in the industry in the past is when new technology has come along, because it's such a competitive industry, anti-lock brakes, a good example, they were developed by the Germans, they could charge a premium for their cars. But as that technology matured and became cheaper, everyone had to include anti-lock brakes, and it ended up being given away pretty much free or for sort of cost. So it's not really clear that software will be this enormous money spinner. But what is clear is if the established industry don't keep up with the software, they risk oblivion. So Simon, what is your prognosis? Do you think that the incumbents will be able to keep up with Tesla and Neo, or do you think they'll go the way of, of Pontiac and the Edsel? Well, that's a great question. I think there will certainly be casualties along the way. But they have to get this right, because if they don't, We've seen Tesla come along. Tesla now produces nearly a million cars a year. And the sort of Tesla wannabes are also there. Now, they have all these advantages of no legacy. What they don't have is the access to capital that the big car makers have, the established brands that the car makers have, and all the other things like service networks and so forth. So the established industry does have some things to its advantage. But it has to use that advantage really carefully in order to make sure that it's still around to benefit from it in the years to come. All right. Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. The National Trust matters. It's a British institution. It's also absolutely enormous. It's Britain's largest private landowner. It has two thirds of the world's population of Herdwick sheep. And it also has almost 10% of the British population as its members. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. Once upon a time, people knew the National Trust for its historic houses and nice scones. But over recent years, controversy over the political direction of the trust has meant that the houses are now a backdrop to a bigger story, which is how Britain's history is told. Okay, hold on. You say this is a British institution that somehow connects sheep and old people and scones. Let's wind back a bit. Tell me more about it. Well, it's known today for its posh houses. It's what British people do on a Sunday. You get in your car, which has its National Trust sticker on the windscreen, and you drive up to a posh house, you walk around it, you imagine what it would have been like to be the posh person there, you buy a scone and you go home. And its origins were really anodyne. It would become known for posh houses, but it was in fact started explicitly for common people and common land. It was founded by a woman called Octavia Hill, who was a mid-Victorian do-gooder, essentially. And she did do a lot of good. She improved housing for Victorian slum dwellers. 
But the thing she became obsessed by was that for happiness, you don't just need food and sewers, you need fresh air, green grass, and for her, somewhere to run around. She founded the National Trust in 1895. So initially, it was really for her about green spaces, but it became known for its country houses. But it sounds as if people are loving and hating it for very different reasons just now. Essentially, it's becoming embroiled in the culture wars. There's a debate about how the National Trust is packaging or not packaging its history and how it's treating its volunteers. There was a dispute in 2017 over whether or not trust volunteers should be forced to wear rainbow lanyards during Pride Month. And then that was followed by debates on dumbing down colonialism, on slavery and on diversity. How has the National Trust entering the cultural wars manifested? I mean, like most culture wars stories, it's something that exists, in a sense, more in the ether than in anything actual and concrete that you can see. I went to the National Trust AGM meeting. There were protesters banging drums outside, handing out leaflets inside. The members who were tweedy and quite terse were criticizing the trust for various things, for its renovations, for its farming, for taking part in pride. And the mood was pretty tense, actually, for an organization that's really just known for biscuits and nice days out. And the reason it's so tense is because people see this partly as the trust as being the epitome of Middle England, and partly because it's about British history and how we tell British history. And Britain is having at the moment to confront aspects of its history that it has really not confronted and people don't like looking at it. So if you think of how normally the National Trust tells history, normally it's very cosy. Its books on history are usually titled things like the National Trust Book of Scones. Recently, in 2019, it published a historical report and it was titled The Interim Report on the Connections Between Colonialism and Properties Now in the Care of the National Trust, Including Links with Historic Slavery. And how did that not very cosy sounding report actually go down? It felt to many people like an overstep. There are lots of people for whom the National Trust should just offer nice days out, not lectures to its members. But then there are other people who reject that idea. What is the National Trust if not an organization that offers history? And as one of the people I spoke to, Satnam Sangera, who's written a book called Empire Land, put it, to him it was inconceivable that you should go to the National Trust and complain that there's too much history there. He said it's like going to a shopping center and complaining that there's too much capitalism there. Get rid of all these shops. You know, the National Trust is history. You should expect to see it, good and bad, when you go there. So is that to say you think the National Trust will sort of stick with it and and, uh, unflinchingly look at all of this history? The National Trust has had kerfuffles before. Its membership is still holding up. And when you go and talk to people about these issues, it's a very National Trustish debate. So however cross people are getting, if you then ask them, are you a member of the National Trust? They'll all say, oh yeah, absolutely, of course. I love their lemon curd or I love their scones. The National Trust isn't going anywhere. Catherine, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.